0: All right, good afternoon. Today's a special day. Really excited about it. We are in, are continuing our journey through 1 Timothy. Uh, we're looking specifically today at church leadership. Also next week, there's two offices in the church, that uh, Jesus' church that he ordained, and he calls uh, elders and deacons. Today, we're gonna look at uh, the elders. What is, what is an elder? Uh, what God's man must be? Uh, and then we're gonna introduce to you two of our newest elders, and so that'll be at the end. Uh, so I'm really excited about that. That's where we're headed. But if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. One of our ushers will bring you one. If you don't own one, this is our gift to you. Take it, keep it, read it, know it, love it. We typically go verse by verse through books of the Bible. We are in First Timothy. But before we get to our text, uh, I'm going to do a, a journey through uh, the Bible to give us a, a context for, for what is a pastor. And before we look at the character qualifications uh, of, of a pastor, it starts with the first question. What is the local church? This This matters. See, uh, everyone who knows, loves, and trusts Jesus is part of what we call the, the universal church. This is the church, uh, whether you're in San Antonio or in Kenya or Africa. No matter where you're at, if you know, love, and trust Jesus, you're part of the, the universal church or the global church. But the, the New Testament is written uh, oftentimes to uh, congregations, local congregations. So you have the global church that expands the, the globe, and then you have local expressions of that, that same church. And so, uh, the local, so I want to give us a definition, a working definition of, of what the local church is, um, and, and the New Testament expects us uh, to be a part of a local church, and so we are the well as a local church, and so I have time to explain how the New Testament expects us to be a part of a local church. That's part of our membership process. Feel free to uh, jump on in that, hear more about that. But the working definition we use in in regards to membership of what a local church is, it's on the screen, it's this. The local church is a community of born-again believers who confessed. Christ Jesus as Lord. So Christians, for church membership, for local church, like it's not simply the building, but the people who make up the congregation. Uh, if you are a, a Christian, you can be a part of the church. If you're not a Christian, you, you may be able to join us, listen to us, sing songs, be a part of spiritual things, but you're not yet a part of the family of God and you are not a part of uh, the, the church. And you're like, I know that. That's why my friends drug me here. That, so you're probably more aware than anyone. But the local church is a group of, when it says born again, this is, we, we were not Christians and we became Christians. And so, in obedience is the next thing. In obedience to the scripture. Uh, this, this means this, that Christians obey. Simply put, Christians obey. They obey. If you don't, they obey Jesus. If you don't obey Jesus, Jesus says himself, then you don't love me. He says, you'll know, I'll know that you love me by you obeying my commands. So uh, in obedience to Jesus, because we love Jesus, because we want to honor Jesus, and we believe that Jesus, the whole Bible is about Jesus. So in obedience to the scriptures, the word of God, the Bible, uh, those Christians and local church organize themselves under qualified leadership. That's what we're going to talk about today. They gather regular for preaching and worship, what we're doing today. They observe the biblical sacraments of baptism and communion. When someone gets saved, we baptize them. And then when uh, every Sunday we take communion. We'll do that at the end of our service today. Uh, they're united by the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit is what unites us, binds us, uh, makes us, uh, adopts, seals our adoption. And are discipled for holiness, scattered to fulfill the great commandment, which is to love your neighbor. Uh, and then uh, the great commission, which is to make disciples of all nations, uh, as missionaries to the world, uh, to the world of, uh, for God's glory and for their joy. That's our working definition. We talk about in the membership class. Local church matters when it comes to church leadership. Because if we don't have an understanding that there is a local church and that there is qualified leadership and that there should be organization and structure, what Paul's going to say to Timothy uh, is going to make very little sense to us. It's going to kind of feel like, okay, who are these elders that he's talking about? These overseers. How does this? Why does this matter? It matters because there, Jesus died for a universal church, but they, he, he calls us to collectively organize ourselves in local expressions of the church. And so, before we get, again, before we get into our text, I'm going to just keep preaching through uh, the context of a church, and then we'll get into the qualifications. Because if there is a local church, it demands us ask the question whose church is it? Right? You've heard pastors say, "Well, my church," or or and, we, and oftentimes people will talk about the church as if uh, the leadership uh, possesses it. So we're going to talk about uh, if we're going to talk about uh, church leadership. We got to understand first whose church this is. It's not my church. It's Jesus' church. Jesus is the head of the church. I'll give us three passages that emphasize this. There are many more, but uh, Ephesians 1.22, the Father put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him as the head over all things to the church. Jesus is the king. He rules over all nations, whether they admit to it or not, they know it or not, they believe it or not. Jesus is the ruler, the king over all nations. He rules and leads over all leaders, all nations, all tribes, all tongues, all churches. He is the leader. He is the head, particularly of the church. In Ephesians 5, 23, says Christ also is the head of the church. Colossians 1, 18, and he is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, in that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus is the head of the church. We talked about last week a little bit about Adam. When when God created Adam, he created Adam and Eve in his image, but uh, Adam was supposed to Exercise authority and rule over uh, the land and love, serve his wife as the head. We talked about last week that being the head of something uh, is it, it, that primarily means is not that you're just in charge, that you're responsible. If you want to be in charge, but you don't want to be responsible, you don't want to be in charge. Jesus is in charge of his church. He is the head of his church. He is the true lead pastor of this church in every church. He's the head of the church globally, and he is the head of the church locally. Jesus is the lead pastor of this church. In headship, Jesus takes responsibility. He's done this already when it comes to our sin. Whose sin did Jesus die for? His or ours? Ours, good answer. Good answer. He didn't have any. Jesus had no sin. He was sinless. Jesus took responsibility as the head of the church. For, he took responsibility for the sins of God's people. That doesn't mean that uh, we're not responsible to repent and trust Jesus and, and, and uh, turn in faith. Yeah, we are responsible. There's human responsibility. But we cannot atone for our sins. We cannot stand uh, in the place uh, where Jesus stood in our place for our sins and bear the wrath of God and raise from the dead victorious. Only Jesus could because he was the God-man, the perfect man. And he is, in doing so, he became the head of the church. He took responsibility for us, for our sins. Our sins were put on his back. He was killed on our behalf, crucified in our place for our sins. As the head taking responsibility. Where Adam failed, Jesus didn't. And so 1 Timothy, Paul is writing to this local congregation, this church in Ephesus. He's, he's writing to a local church pastor in a local church context. And so the Holy Spirit intends that letter to not just be uh, imparted to Timothy and therefore to the uh, Ephesian church. But it is intended uh, to be, in the, uh, in, to be uh, useful to us here today for instruction. Not just to Timothy. Because all scriptures God breathed. And Jesus is the head of his church. Next, Jesus is the, uh, in addition to being the head of the church, he is the founder of every church. This is largely important. I get it that we have, quote, founders of churches I'm not saying that humans don't participate in founding documents. I'm saying before there was ever a founding document, before ever any pastor was called to any ministry, Jesus was the author and founder of every church. In Hebrews 3, 1, it says this. Therefore, brothers, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling in mean Christians, consider Jesus the apostle and the high priest of our confession. This is apostle. This word means he's the, he's the church planter. He's the true church planter. He's the true founding pastor. He's the true lead pastor. That's who Jesus is. He's the founder of this church. He's not just the foundation of our church, but he is the the, the author and founder, the apostle of the church. He is additionally the high priest. He's the one who atoned for our sins. That's what a priest does. The the priest makes the sacrifice. Jesus not only uh, makes the sacrifice, but is the sacrifice. We saw two weeks ago in, in 1 Timothy that uh, Jesus is, he is the one God and he is the one mediator, the high priest, between God and man. And so this is important because G- if Jesus isn't in charge and Jesus is, isn't the head of the church, then we, we stand here today just playing dress up. Coming together to give ourselves some warm, fuzzy feelings and, you know, walk out of here as good, moral people. Jesus is is not just the head. He is the founder of the church. It is important. Jesus isn't just in charge. He is. He is the true founding pastor. Next, Jesus is the builder of every church. Matthew 16, 18 says this. Jesus said, "I I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus is, is, is not just the head. Jesus is not just the, uh, the founder, he is also the builder. He is the architect, he's the engineer. He's, he does it all. this is awesome. So he is not only the pastor of every church, but he has purchased this church. He's established it. He owns it. He, he drew up the, the blueprint he calls the shots he oversees it he protects it he if you haven't seen this yet if you're a guest with us like and and maybe you're not a christian uh the big idea is that uh jesus is important if you don't see that yet that's the i have like one point usually always and it's just jesus figure out how to get whatever we're saying back to him and you kind of understand the bible Pretty much, most times, all times, if you have the right context. But it's about Jesus. The church is about Jesus. The Bible is about Jesus. What we're doing today is about Jesus. It's all about Him. And so Jesus is, is the, the builder of the church. It is, it is He who bu- builds it, He who establishes it, and says that the gates of hell cannot stand against Him. Meaning, this that Jesus' his mission is victorious. Like, Jesus doesn't lose. This is a big. This is a big point. When he says the gates of hell shall not stand to prevail against it, he means long term. When we look down the corridor of time, at the end of time, we'll go look. We'll look down and go, man. Jesus definitely won this one. It's not. Sometimes you look at, at small glimpses of human history and you go, man. It seems like the church is losing. Listen, hell cannot prevail against Jesus' church. This should give you, if you're a Christian and a part of uh, this church, uh, uh, some great confidence. You don't labor alone. You labor in the power of, of, of Christ. You labor victoriously. What we're doing is not trying to, to, to make an inch, get an inch in our culture and our world and just you know, we'll take a, make a little difference in our society. We're doing what Jesus says. We're building a church, a local church. And Satan and demons, guess what? They can't handle it. They'll bark like chihuahuas. I always say this all the time. That's what demons do. They're like little dogs, and I'm, forgive me, that you, know, that you could easily remove. If you're, I'm not, some of you like little dogs. That's cool. That's awesome. I'm just saying, like, he's not a threat to Jesus. Now, if you step outside the, the, uh, the you know, my, my two-year-old sees a little chihuahua, you know, maybe a little scary. That's a little us. We, we need to stand behind the builder of our church. His name is Jesus, which means that, uh, notice the imagery, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Satan and demons aren't advancing on the church. It's Christians advancing on darkness. They can't prevail. They can't hold us back. This isn't the church has a mission. Jesus and the Great Commission to go make disciples is sending us out as missionaries to disciple the nations. Under the authority of our king who is going to establish our work in his name. That means that we can be confident that discipleship works. That sharing the gospel saves. Some of you are, were not Christians when you first started coming here. And now you are. Like, how did that happen? Jesus is building his church. You can't stop him. Some of you are like, man, I'm going to try. That's awesome. Spurgeon, I believe, called Jesus, the, the, the Holy Spirit, the, the hound of heaven. He's going to hound you continually in pursuit and love in, in grace and in peace and kindness to lead you back, lead you in repentance. He's going to build it like an, he, he, he's going to establish every stone so that it is built up into a great and glorious church. Next, Jesus is the chief shepherd who rules the church. So not only is he the, he's leading it, he's uh, founding it, he's building it, but he's he's caring for the people. He's the true shepherd. He's the good shepherd. He's the chief shepherd who rules the church. 1 Peter 2.25 says this, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd, the overseer of your souls. This was us. When we were rebelling in our sin, Jesus brought us back home. 1 Peter 5.4 says, When Jesus, the chief shepherd, appears, you will receive an unfading glory. He is the shepherd that shepherds us in the present, and he's the one that's gonna take us home to eternity, to, the, to the, the, the new heavens and the new earth that he's building, establishing. See, he's not just building a church here on earth, which he is, but he's also establishing uh, 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 his kingdom in the hearts of people here on earth, but also uh, a new heaven and a new earth where we will live and dwell forever with him. Because he's the ruler, the king, and so his church, those who are born again, will be with him in eternity. And he'll wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death will be no more. There'll be no more pain, no more sorrow, no, no more hunger. Like the things that we experience on this earth that are pains to us, that are sorrows, that are trials, that are temptations, will have passed away. And King Jesus, because he is king, who is seated on the throne, says he's going he's to make it all new. And as a chief shepherd, we need to understand this. That Jesus not only rules the church, but as the shepherd, he protects his church. I've said it often. Jesus is a lion for you, but a lamb to you. A lion is vicious and ferocious and can devour its prey at any given time. Jesus is a lion. He's, we're talked, he's talked about as a lion throughout the scriptures. But see, he is a ferocious lion that is for you. He's the, the lion who protects you. He's the shepherd that goes out of the way to uh, kill the wolf that's coming after you. He's the one who uh, defeats sin, Satan, death, and the grave on your behalf. He is a lion, a vicious, ferocious lion for you. If you are not in Christ, you don't know love and trust Jesus, that should scare you a little bit because lions are scary. Jesus is scarier than lions. He is. He is. He is. To oppose Jesus is to, is to say that his sacrifice was for no reason, and, and, he, and, and he laid down his life for no cause. It's to spit on his sacrifice, to mock it. But Jesus, the, the good shepherd, the, the chief shepherd, looks up upon us in our sin, has compassion, and he has patience. And he's a lamb to us. Meaning he's both tender and tough. He's tender to us, he's tough for us. He is a warrior to protect us and a friend. We're, we're, we, the, the scriptures teach us that we were once enemies and now we are friends. So he takes enemies and makes them friends. While you're living and breathing on earth, we all have the privilege, the opportunity to repent and turn and trust Jesus, so that he can be a shepherd, a lion, uh, a shepherd to us, a lion for us. If not, when we we die. we we will, if we, we die apart from Christ, don't know, love, and trust Jesus, we will experience the fullness of the ferociousness of Christ. Jesus is the one who rules over hell. Satan doesn't. Satan's there being tormented. Jesus oversees hell. He is the king there too. Hell is a place an eternal place, and an eternal state for those who continue to rebel against this, this lamb, Jesus, who loves, serves, gives his life. No greater love than this, we're told, that, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. Jesus not only laid down his life for his friends, but for his enemies to make them friends. And if God the Father did not spare Christ the Son, he will not spare anyone who rejects. The sacrificial work that Jesus made in our place, on the cross, for our sins. This is what it means to be a shepherd. There's a a hard word there to us that that we have to reconcile with reality if we don't know, love, and trust Jesus. That a a shepherd rules his sheep. If you are not a sheep, you're not a part of the the family of God, then we invite you to, to know, love, and trust Jesus. Trust Jesus today. Lastly, when it comes to Jesus in the church, Jesus closes down faithless churches. He's the one who starts them and he's willing to close them down. Revelation 2.5 says this, remember therefore, he's talking to a church. This is Jesus talking to a church. He says, remember therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That right there, that verse was written to the church in Ephesus that Timothy is pastoring. It's what it matters. When Paul's saying, uh, put in overseers, he's gonna, and he talks about guarding doctrine and, 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 and obeying Jesus. It ultimately, uh, historically culminates in that church, which Paul is writing to, to Timothy to lead and exercise oversight in. He eventually gets to the point where Jesus shows up to the church and says, hey, if you don't repent, I'm shutting the doors. And so, therefore, a church must love Jesus, obey Jesus, submit to Jesus, trust Jesus, worship Jesus. And so, this is what Martin Luther called oh, the first, uh, in the 99, or uh, sorry, uh, 99, um, 95 theses, he nailed, he was, uh, the first one was life, the Christian life is one of repentance. This is how the Reformation began, was, was a call to repentance. It, the Martin Luther's plan wasn't to start a Reformation, start a revolution. It was like, hey, guys, we should repent. We should be convicted by God's word. And when we are, we should turn from our sin. And we should trust our Savior. We should continually, perpetually, ongoingly repent. So what Jesus is saying to this church in Ephesus and in Revelation 2, he's saying, hey, I have the right to shut this down if you don't repent, see Jesus has come. We're told in John, He came to give us life, into life, an abundant life. Sin keeps us from that abundant life. Obedience keeps us, protects us, preserves us, allows us to actually flourish in the life that Jesus has called us to. Oftentimes we think that disobedience leads to greater joy, but it does not. It's a temporary joy, but the greatest joy is found with Jesus, abiding in Jesus, remaining in Jesus, walking with Jesus, obeying Jesus. And Jesus says, if a church continues uh, to, to to willfully disobey continually, he might step in and shut it down. Jesus has a lot of patience. But willfully unrepentant churches will eventually close. And so, what what he's not saying here is that all churches that close are uh, unrepentant. There may be a time and a season for every church to close, and it may be God's plan and God's will, and it not may not be because of sin or unrepentance. It's not. He's not saying every church closure is a, is unrepentant. Sometimes it's for the good and flourishing of uh, the next generation or something of that nature. Or maybe it's a season for uh, that the church is, is not able to, to do what they once were able to do, for whatever reason. There's there's dying a church dying or closing with dignity, and that that's not necessarily um, unrepentance. And so, but Jesus does reserve the right, we're told, to close down the churches that He founded, that He started. And so, the big idea here I want us to see when it comes to the church, the local church. Uh, is that Jesus is in charge. From start to finish, this is Jesus' church. So we should organize ourselves under his authority and his word. And this is exactly what Paul is getting at in 1 Timothy 3. This is the point. This is why qualification of church leaders matter. This is why character matters. This is why guarding churches from false doctrine matters is because it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. It's his church. It's his bride. I don't know about you. Well, I know about me. Uh, Like when it comes to my bride, I don't you know, I have particular feelings towards her and defending and protecting her in ways that uh, matter. And so, Jesus has even greater, greater, greater love and affection and protection with tenderness and toughness for his, his, his bride, the church. And so, it matters how we organize ourselves, it matters how we submit, it matters how we've used God's word, and it matters who leads in the church. And so, Jesus, uh, pastors of Jesus Church, this is what a, a, pas, a pastor must be. This is, we talked about this last week a bit, but what qualifies uh, one to be a pastor, uh, qualifies a man to be a pastor is not his uh, gender, but his character. His character. 1 Timothy 3, uh, 1 through 7 says this. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, uh, he desires a noble task. That word overseer It can be exchanged with elder, pastor, um, bishop. All those words in the New Testament refer to the same office. So here at the well, uh, we reserve the office of elder uh, and the term pastor for those who are elders. So an elder equals pastor, pastor equals elder, That's how we use it. That's how the Bible uses it. And that's what we mean. Uh, People can minister, everyone uh, of you who are filled with the Holy Spirit, part of the church. Uh, Y'all are ministers uh, uh, of Jesus. Um, You are ambassadors. There's a lot of other terms. But the word overseer or elder is reserved to those pastors in charge of the church. And he says this, if anyone desires this, they desire a noble task. It's a noble thing. It's a noble thing to desire to be an elder. And so he says that it, we, we believe, we, or he teaches us, and we talked about this last week, that the, the term elder or the, the office of an elder is reserved to qualified men. And so this, this elder, he must be a godly man. That's what we're going to see. The character qualifications, what we're going to see, are, he, are, are godliness. And I know we live in a world where uh, a lot of media attention has been given to a church leadership, a lot of scandals, a lot of, a lot of things that have happened. So it's hard oftentimes for us to, to look at church leadership and trust. And some of you have been a part of churches that have had, had really poor church leadership and have had maybe even abusive church leadership or church leadership that, that the men were not, did not meet the qualifications that are, de, that are described here. And they ruled in a way that was not honoring and glorifying to, to Jesus. And so that's why it's important for us to know what God says and then to know like, hey, are we a part of one of those churches? And so he says this, verse two, therefore an overseer and elder must be above reproach. This is, this is a man of great character. It's not a perfect man, but a repentant man. A man who, who doesn't really have, uh, his character flaws are not uh, so uh, uh, obtuse that they're just so recognizable from every stretch of the imagination. He is a godly man. This is the type of man who's worth imitating. He's a type of man who's worth imitating, a man of great character. He has to be the husband of one wife. Literally, this means he's to be a one woman man, meaning he has eyes only for his wife. This disqualifies most men in the entire America. And a lot of pastors who are still pastoring. I didn't write the book. I'm just telling, delivering the news. What this means is the, the uh, God's men, godly men, the elders of the church aren't hanging out with women one-on-one privately if they're not their wives. They're doing a counseling meeting, they're probably doing it in public or they have another individual there. They're not going over to another girl's house or going to the uh, bar with another girl or coworkers. This is, not, this is not what he does. The man of God does. He has eyes for one woman. He really is the type of guy who can't wait to get out of work to get home to his wife. He loves her. He wants to be with her. He loves his kids. He would rather spend time with them than anyone else. That's what he's saying here. Additionally, he is to be sober-minded, meaning he thinks clearly. He's not ruled by his emotions and passion. Doesn't mean he doesn't have emotions, but he's, he's, he, he has them checked and under control. He's not uh, prone to rage and, and just not clear thinking. He's level-headed, especially when it comes to decision-making. He's not, what he's not saying is there's not times where he's just, like, Monday, don't, I don't make big decisions on Monday. I'm tired after Sunday, especially because we're in the evenings. Like, Monday, I don't make big decisions. Why? Because I don't really want to make decisions that I'm not clear, sober-minded. It's not that I'm, you know, out of my mind, but I'm just tired, oftentimes cranky. It's, it's a real thing. Don't make decisions that way. But, but the, the man, the, the elder, should be able to understand that, to be able to control his emotions, to lead in light of hardship and still be clear-headed, level-headed, and uh, therefore, the next one, self-control. This is uh, a gift given to all of us by the Holy Spirit. One of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is self-control. The elders of the church, they walk by the power of the Holy Spirit. Controlling their emotions, controlling their thoughts, controlling—they're not—they're ruling over, not being ruled by, their emotions. Additionally, they're to be respectable. This is often uh, other. This is oftentimes you see there's a type of man that that uh, wants respect, but he's not respectable. You, can, you see it. It, it. You just, man, he's, he's childish, and you look around and you're like, "Man, this guy needs to just grow up. That's not what an elder should be. I'm not saying that an elder can't have fun or jack around with kids with their kids and like, have fun and you know, act a fool. what I'm saying is that the, the majority of their life is that, man, they're respectable. They're respectable. And so oftentimes men demand respect and want respect, but they don't want to live respectably. The elders in the church are. That's what God calls them to. Additionally, he says they're to be hospitable. This is not just simply bringing people over to your house and having a good meal. Uh, While that is awesome, hospitality in the New Testament is referring to hosting non-Christians. Fellowship is when you invite Christians over. Hospitality is when you invite non-Christians over. I get it. We use the term interchangeably. That's okay. I'm not dogging the term. What I'm saying is the elder must be able to uh, have a people over like non-christians be able to actually have friends doesn't mean they have to have only non-christian friends or to be the most uh, extroverted person but they have to be hospitable meaning this they have to have a heart for the lost for people who don't know love and trust jesus to be able to hear them answer their questions welcome them into their home in love and gentleness and grace next they're to be able to teach this is because they're called to lead You have to be able to teach God's word because it's the authority and also to defend it, to guard it, to uh, disciple, to train. It's important. This is important. This doesn't mean that the uh, elders must be, their primary ministry must be preaching, but they have to be able to wield their sword is what it's saying. The sword is the word of God. Next, he's not to be a drunkard, meaning he is not to abuse any substance. That's not just alcohol, but any substance. This goes back to being sober-minded, clear-headed, not drunk with wine, but be filled and led and empowered and controlled by the Holy Spirit. Additionally, he is to not be violent, but gentle. This is very important. This is very important. See, it's important because aggression and passion are good. What he's not saying is that the elder must have no passion, no zeal, and no aggression. He's saying that it, it matters where this toughness, this aggression of the uh, elder is, is pointed towards. To the sheep, he is to be tender. He is to be gentle. He is to be kind, to be caring. But to those who would want to steal the sheep, those who would want to harm the sheep, those who would want to teach false doctrine to the sheep, Paul repeatedly is, is quite vicious uh, against wolves. You love the wolf, you, or sorry, you love the sheep, you love the wolf and then the wolf eats the sheep. You love the sheep and shoot the wolf. That's the the New Testament. I'm not arguing to to shoot anyone physically. What I'm saying is that the elder must have a, 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 shouldn't be violent, shouldn't fly off the handle, but should be a gentle type person, but is one who is willing to protect the sheep, take the shots that need to be taken. Therefore, he must not be quarrelsome. This means he's not looking for a fight, but he's not unwilling to fight, particularly heretics, false doctrine, false teaching. Sometimes, and it hasn't happened often, but there was one point in time where we had to shut down some community groups. You're like, man, that's, that's not loving. Yeah, well, they were not teaching the gospel. They were not trusting Jesus. And there were some weird things going on, a lot like First Corinthians, that I'm not going to get into here. That she had to go shut it down. The elders have to have the type of grit and the type of tenacity and the type of godliness that's willing to get uncomfortable. And in, in, in they're not looking for a fight, but they're willing to step in. Some of you know this. You've had people say some things about you and we've gotten to a meeting and, you, and man, I've had to uh, speak the truth and love to some folks. And this is not quarrelsome, not looking for a fight. But if someone, I remember there's this, this there was a group of two people that there's a new Christian. Uh, it was a uh, good friend of mine, and they were they were, they were a part of a cult, and they wanted to convince him to join it. And so uh, they invited him to the meeting. And so I showed up to the meeting. They said, "Hey, we can't have the meeting because you know uh, uh, it's us two versus him. Like that's how we're going to play." And I said, "That's not fair. I'm showing up." And they said, "No, we're not going to have the meeting." Then. I said, "Let's not have the meeting then." And so they they're like, "Well, do, what what are you? What is your opposition?" And so I'm "I'm not trying to fight you. I literally told them, I'm not trying to fight you on this, but." Uh, Listen. Here's some things that I disagree with. You're gonna. I know your philosophy. I know the way you 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 cultivate and, and steal sheep. And I'm not gonna let that happen. And so uh, we went toe to toe in the scriptures. That's what we did. I pulled up the Bible. I told him what it said. Ended up not being friends. I love those guys. I wish they would be my friend. But that's what an elder does. He cares. It's it's in love when someone wants to take someone in 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 brainwash them or to take them and help them to believe false doctrine that's what Paul's been saying to Timothy guard the doctrine elders do that not in a quarrelsome way like I said not looking for a fight they're being patient but they're like Jesus tender and tough not a lover of money, meaning they're, they're good stewards of their stuff. They're, they don't worship money, but they steward it. Uh, they manage. They must manage their household well with all dignity, keeping their children submissive. Pastoring begins in the home. Parenting is pastoring. So if you're a man and you have a child, you're a pastor. Like, really? Of your house. Right? The question is not whether you're a pastor, it's the whether you, you pastor. You are one. You are the pastor. You're pastor dad in your, in your house. Uh, you don't need a title. If you needed one, now I gave you one. So being a pastor to kids, to discipling our kids in our home, takes nuance. Pastoring the church takes nuance. And so one gets their pastoral training primarily through being a parent. He says, For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a, new, a recent convert, meaning there should be some maturity in his, in, this man, in an elder's Christian walk. They should have walked for Jesus for some time. They should be tested. They should, I like to see a man go through some suffering or through some trials to see, like, how do they handle that? Charles Spurgeon uh, wouldn't allow anyone into his pastor's college if, if they didn't uh, exhibit some sort of suffering. Why? Because being a pastor is hard. A lot of people don't know what you do. A lot of people think you, you only drink coffee and everyone likes to send you emails when they're mad. And you're like, and so sometimes there are pastors that, that Need If they've never experienced any sort of opposition or any sort of conversation where you thought it was going to be a hangout uh, and then it turned into a, a, someone telling you all the things that they hate about you. Y'all don't do that. I'm not saying that this is happening right now. Y'all really don't. So this is not like some, you're like, is he talking about me? Not at all. I love you guys. Y'all are the, the, one of the greatest churches, or I think the greatest church in the city, definitely the nation and world. But uh, I, y'all, are, y'all are great sheep. Y'all, y'all I, I love being your pastor. I'm just saying these are the type of things that go into being a pastor and a pastor an elder must be willing to uh, step in and there's nuance there. And so he must not be a new convert that he may be puffed up, becoming uh, uh, filled with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. See this all the time. A guy becomes a Christian very early, is gifted, he can preach, he can teach, but he's not been tested. He becomes a pastor, he's a leader. Later on he walks away from the faith. You're like, How did that happen? That's how. You laid hands on him too early. You put it, you installed him, You, you installed the gift, the gifted man before the character was ready. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. This means he's not a two-faced. He's not two-faced. He's not one man in public, one man in private, one man on stage, one man uh, at his home. He, he's the same. He's consistent. He's a consistent example of Jesus. But also it's that he knows how to have uh, non-Christian friends, outsiders. They're, they're, that doesn't mean every outsider must like the pastors. Because inevitably, that didn't happen for Paul. He got killed. There's someone that hated him so much that they killed him. They killed Jesus too, can't be friends with everybody. But what he's saying is that the, the, the elder must be able to live in such a way that even outsiders, if they're being logical and they're being understanding, oh man, he is, he is an exemplary man. And so he's a, same, he's a consistent man, same public and private. And so this is the type of character. I want you to see this type of character in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. This is the type of character every man in this room and every woman in this room ought to aspire to. It's called being a Christian. This is the character of Jesus. Oftentimes we look at the character of an elder and we go, man, that's just outside of my reach. No, the Holy Spirit's been given to you. It's been deposited in you if you're a Christian. The same Spirit that caused Jesus to walk in this likeness and the same Spirit that empowers the elders to walk in this likeness is available to all Christians to walk in. So, this is the type of character every woman and every man ought to strive to be. But far too often, uh, we see that, we we see this, and then we see the pastors maybe on TV or maybe at at, at something that we grow up uh, observing from the outside. I know many people have church hurt here, and you look at those pastors and you go, man, I don't want to imitate that. And so if you look at these character qualifications, what a man must be, I hope you see that what what this man is uh, aspiring to be and ought to be looking like is more and more like Jesus. Which is the call of every Christian to look more and more like Jesus. The difference between an elder and a Christian should simply only be a calling. Should simply only be a calling elder is, is the man who has rank. He has authority. He's, he's, been, he's been called specifically by God to protect the church, to lead the church. I told you I'd be quick, but I'm not. Um, and so what do elders do? I'm going to be quick on this one. So that's what the man must be. His character matters. But what do elders do? Sometimes we have wrong expectations for elders. This is why it matters. Next week, we're going to look at deacons. What do the deacons in the church do? Because what the elders do and the deacons do are different. They're like a right and a left hand that complement one another. And so oftentimes, if you have an expectation on your elders and your pastors to do the work of a deacon, you'll be let down all the time. All the time. Like, how's not that? I'm like, yeah, because we have deacons and they're that. And the de- Or if you want the deacon to be an elder, you're like, they're not that. They're not being this to me. It's like... They're not. That's not their job. And so the duties of a pastor or an elder is to to study and pray the scriptures. The the verses are on the screen. I'm not going to Nuance them, but y'all can look at them, take pictures. Acts 6, 4, they study the scriptures. Uh, They're dedicated to this. Elders gotta spend specific time being dedicated to the scriptures so they know their God, know their word, they can lead, teach, and the next rule. They rule and lead the church, 1 Timothy 5, 17. Uh, This means big vision, uh, vision for direction, the future. This is leadership, where are we going? Additionally, they manage the church. 1 Timothy uh, 3, 4 through 5. This is managing through uh, numbers, charts, organization, administration. Uh, think about not just an office man, just like manager of managers, CEOs, sometimes of administration. Care for the people in the church. 1 Peter 2, or sorry, 1 Peter 5, 2 through 5. This is counseling. This is oftentimes triaging a situation. A, a big need comes up or a, a sin issue arises or care needs to happen. They're on the scene. They're there to love and care for and counsel the church or to direct them to the best place for care. Uh, additionally, in Hebrews 13, 17, they're to give an account to God for the church. This is a big deal. This is why you shouldn't want to just want be an elder. It's, an, it's, an, it's a noble thing, but at the end of the day, we take our marching orders from Jesus, or we should, and if we don't, that should scare us. And Jesus says we'll be, we'll be judged accordingly. Additionally, in 1 Timothy 3, 2, he says that uh, they are to teach the Bible correctly. I mean, if you're going to give an account to Jesus, and then you should do it correctly. This means education. This means not necessarily formal education, but it means that the pastor never stops learning, never stops growing. Knowing their God, knowing their King. Preaching, First Timothy five seventeen. This is this is what most people think pastors do. The only thing he only works on Sunday. Uh, that's what he does. He st- stands up there and yells for an hour. Like that's what he, that's preaching. That's one thing a pastor and elder will do. There's as you see a lot of other things. Uh, praying for the sick. This is James five thirteen through fifteen. If James five, it says that in th- verse thirteen it says if, you, if you're sick. Call the elders. Let them come to you, anoint you with oil, pray over you that you may be healed. A lot of people don't do this verse. We do this. You're like, I I didn't know that. Well, yeah, because you never called. How do you know that we didn't? Never tested it out. Like, is that a thing? Yeah, it's a thing. We don't, like, publicize it. Go, hey, today, like, Instagram Live, about to anoint some oil today. Like, Jesus condemns uh, making your prayers known to the outsiders like the Pharisees like who stand on street corners who just want to be uh, cool. And so they only pray to uh, forget to get likes and to get public praise. This is go privately, lay hands, anoint with oil, pray, and that Jesus can heal. Jesus does that. So we, we pray for the sick. Sound doctrine and refute false teachers, Titus 1.9. Uh, it, this is if it's needed. This, they're not, this is, elders are not looking around the entire world on every YouTube channel going, hey, who, who's the false teacher I can refute? We're looking at our church and going, is there false doctrine in, doctrine here? Or it, it, Do we need to step out? Do we need to refute? What's going on maybe culturally? But this is, this is an if-needed thing, but it's a must-do when needed. Uh, they work hard and give spiritual guidance. First Thessalonians 5:12 means that uh, elders aren't to be lazy; they're to work hard. Rightly use money and power. First Peter 5:1 through 3. This means they're accountable to one another. They're accountable to Jesus and they're accountable to one another. They should be acting in such a way to protect the church from false teachers. That's Acts 20, uh, 17 through thirty-one. They ought, to, they ought to discipline unrepentant Christians. You're like, who wants to do that? No one wants to sign up for me. I gotta, I want to discipline my own kids. It's hard. It's hard to discipline. But we should discipline when it's necessary. Disciplining unrepentant Christians, the goal in in church discipline, which is done by the elders, is to bring people back to repentance. Bring them back to Jesus. Help them see Jesus as glorious and awesome as they once did. Church discipline is oftentimes a a last, uh, you know, people only think of church discipline as removal from the church. That's like the last ditch effort. Church discipline starts with with confessing sin in community groups. That's part of church discipline. You're like really, yeah, it's preventative care, confessing sin, walking in accountability, open, honestly. That's disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness. Additionally, Romans thirteen one through seven tells us we're to obey uh, the the law of the land, particularly. Uh, when it comes to a church in the United States of America, we're a nonprofit. We're a 501c3. There's laws. you got to obey them. you got to do them right. you got to file your taxes. All that matters. Most people don't, especially when you plant a church, like, I didn't know this existed. I've had to learn tax law and learn, uh, you know, just crazy IRS stuff. Like, I never thought I needed to know this. I guarantee a seminary doesn't teach you this. So uh, it's, this is real life. But the elders are responsible. So they got to figure things out organizationally. Maybe they hire someone, maybe they seek counsel. Point is, they got to be responsible for the legality of the the organization. And lastly, they develop other leaders and teachers. 2 Timothy 2 1 through 2. This is uh, the behind the scenes, the day in and day out, constantly developing. It's not necessarily in a classroom. It could be over coffee. It could be over lunch. It could be a conversation that happens in this room after church. It could be uh, in, in a class setting, but it's any and all of those things. And here's the thing. If you're looking at this, going, "Man, that's a lot of stuff that pastors do. Yeah, but not every elder does everything. They're all responsible, but they're all responsible to make it happen. But the elder should be a team. To divide the work in according to their giftedness, according to their their talent, and according to the needs and function of the church. I always say it this way. If You know, if there's a man who can do one plus one and that equals two, that's awesome, that's normal. But if a guy does one plus one and it equals three, that means the Holy Spirit, that's Holy Spirit math. They're doing something supernaturally. And so we want to organize ourselves in a way in which uh, we're we're operating based off the giftings the Holy Spirit has given us so that we uh, function at a a capacity that blesses and cares and shepherds the church and does it in a way that, that everyone in here is flourishing and thriving. And so how does an elder team assemble? The elders are equal in value and authority, but they function differently. They're a team. And so what makes... A character qualified man, an elder. It's not the, it's calling. You can, I hope all you men have the, the, call, the qualifications of an elder one day. Hope that's all of you. But what makes a man an overseer, Acts 20, uh, 28 says that the Holy Spirit is the one who sets apart and makes a man an overseer. It's the Holy Spirit. He's the one who calls. It's calling. Calling is what makes a man an elder. And so it, 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 in calling, it includes Character, it must include character. It also includes competencies needed for that church, that day, that time. Like there are things that we need to know in 2022 that they did not need to know in the first century. Pragmatically, organizationally. And so there's a competency that, that elders need to have based off of their geographic location, perhaps, on the time and age in which they live. So there's character, there's capacity, or there's competency, there's capacity. Can they do the job in the season? Sometimes a man's qualified and called, but it's just not the right timing. It's not the right timing. And then lastly, compatibility. When it comes to a team, you have to have a right fit. There does, never needs to be two me's. I don't even want to see the other me. Like this just, we will not get along. It will not be a good fit. If there's another me, they need to go plant a church. And that would be good, and that's awesome. That glorifies Jesus. It does. We don't need two right hands. We need right hand, left hand, right foot, left foot. We need need unity, but we also need to be compatible. And so it matters. so, how do we discern a, a man's call to a partic- to our particular elder team? Well, we we of course look at his character, but we also look at his his compa- his his capacity. Is this the right timing for him? Does he have the competencies? Does he ha- is he a compatible teammate? If so, then we through all those things, we believe that man is called. And so the New Testament tells us what a man must be, but does not tell us what elders uh, must do. Uh, Sorry, they tell us what the elders must do, but not how to install, how many elders to have, how to organize the elder team. So depending on the person, depending on the church, depending on all of those things, things, uh, eldership can look different.